Employment Roundtable podcast is produced by the Gable Gottwalls Law Firm. The Employment Roundtable is provided for educational and informational purposes only and does not contain legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. The information provided should not be taken as an indication of future legal results. Any information provided should not be acted upon without consulting legal counsel. Welcome to the Employment Roundtable, where we provide you with the perspectives and information you need to make wise employment decisions for your employees and your organizations. I'm your host, Talitha Ebright, and today we're meeting again with Holly Cole of the EEOC and my Gable Gottwalls partner, Ellen Adams, to discuss the Americans with Disabilities Act, or the ADA. So Holly, let's start with you. Will you please give us just a basic explanation of the ADA? Sure, and thanks again, Talitha, for inviting me to visit with you all today. Um, And want to remind everybody that all of the information that we've been talking about through all of these episodes um, can be found on eeoc.gov. It's a great resource for um, an overview of all of the laws that we enforce, as well as some best practices for employers and even some information that's helpful just to small businesses. But um, basically, the ADA prohibits discrimination against people with disabilities um, in every aspect of employment. And a person with a disability um, can be defined in a couple of different ways. The obvious one is it can be a person that has an actual physical or mental impairment, but it could also be someone who has a record of having such an impairment. Perhaps they had it in the past, um, maybe they're in remission, maybe they're in the process of recovery. And then it could be a person who's simply regarded as having a disability. Um, In other words, the employer might make an assumption that the person has a disability when in fact they really don't. But um, one of the big components of the ADA is that it requires employers and employees to talk with one another, to engage in this interactive process to determine whether a reasonable accommodation could be provided for a person with a disability so that they could perform the essential duties of that job that they're doing. And also keep in mind that the ADA requires um, that applicants uh, be treated uh, fairly under that law as well. So if, for, uh, for instance, if you have an employee who or an applicant who is deaf, they may need um, a sign language interpreter to go through the application process. And that might be an accommodation that could be offered to them. Sorry, I had to unmute myself there. Um, Thanks for that, Holly. And so, and then my understanding is that there is also uh, the much newer act, um, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act or GINA. What is GINA? So yeah, and it's it's definitely an uh, it's its own unique um, law that we enforce, and it kind of covers some things that the ADA um, did not cover and does not cover. But yet, as time went on, uh, we we realized Congress realized that there was a need to protect people from discrimination regarding their genetic information. So what does that mean? Um, basically, it means that employers cannot use genetic information when they're making employment decisions. Um, genetic information could be information about that person's um, genetic tests 
or background, as well as their family members' medical history. Um, how that would come up is uh, some employers were asking about family medical history to determine whether or not um, that employee or that applicant might have um, a greater chance of developing a certain medical condition, um, something like that. So um, Gina prohibits that kind of information, genetic information from being used in the employment setting. Great. And so, and then what is the intersection between the ADA and Gina? Yeah, so there's definitely some, some overlap. So when we're thinking about Gina, um, there's that general prohibition against acquiring genetic information or asking for genetic information or medical history. There are a couple of, of exceptions, though, that are important to note, but something like an in, inadvertent um, disclosure of someone's genetic history. For instance, a supervisor overhears an employee talking about a family member who's undergoing some sort of treatment or whatever. That's not a gene of violation. Um, uh, employers sometimes ask for you know, genetic information or medical history as part of a voluntary wellness program. Again, it's voluntary, uh, so that's not a violation. And then uh, I know we're going to be talking a little bit later about the Family Medical Leave Act. And as part of the requirements um, for that, for an employee getting leave under the uh, Family Medical Leave Act, they may be asked to disclose some medical information about their family. And that's not a violation of GINA. Um, Sometimes, and this would be a, a real unusual situation, but sometimes genetic information is, is acquired through a genetic monitoring program that monitors the biological effects of toxic substances in the workplace. So it might be part of a government study or, or some other thing like that. But again, that's a very narrow situation where if medical information was disclosed, it wouldn't be a violation of GINA. So then let's flip that and look at the at, under the ADA. Same thing under the ADA. Um, employers in, in most situations um, cannot ask employees for medical information, their medical records, or they can't ask them about a disability, um, something like that. Again, there are some exceptions to that. Um, you can certainly require an employee to go um, to undergo a drug test to make sure that they're not um, you know, taking illegal drugs or something like that, or if it's a safety situation. Um, so both of those laws prohibit just a, um, a full-on, you know, research into someone's medical history or physical mental abilities, um, but there are some exceptions. So I guess the, the overarching similarity would be in those situations where it's certainly permissible to get medical information either under GINA or under the ADA, there's still that confidentiality requirement. So employers have to keep that confidential information separate and apart from any other employee records. And they're not uh, permitted to talk about that to other employees or to share that information. So that's, that's kind of where we see some intersection. Thank you. And um, in your work at the EEOC, what, what are some um, novel issues that the EEOC has seen recently in relation to the ADA and GINA? Uh, so comes to mind with the, um, and I could see how this could definitely be an intersection with both, um, but sometimes issues of, of pregnancy. Um, and again, that also might um, implicate Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. 
So for instance, um, if we see a situation where pregnant women, um, you know, maybe they need a, a short-term reasonable accommodation, right? Um, but sometimes they might need longer. Sometimes they might have a pregnancy-related condition that leads to a longer-term disability, which then requires um, a reasonable accommodation under the ADA. So, um, and involved in all of that, let's say the, the pregnant employee has also gone, has undergone some genetic testing for um, in vitro fertilization, right? So there could be this um, situ really unusual situation that could implicate all three of those, of those laws. So um, we do see some of those issues occasionally. Thanks so much, Holly. Um, I'm gonna shift a little bit to asking some questions to Ellen about the Family Medical Leave Act or FMLA. Ellen, will you please just give us a basic overview or explanation of the FMLA? I will do my best um, to keep it simple and short because the FMLA, um, I could go on for hours. No one wants that. So <laughs> in short, the FMLA uh, affects certain covered employers. So if you're a covered employer, then perhaps you have eligible employees. So most employers, if they have 50 or more employees are going to be covered, very high level um, employees are going to be eligible if they work at a location where there are 50 or more employees within a 75 mile radius, if they've worked there for a year, and if they've worked at least 1,250 hours within that year that they've worked. Very high level overview of eligibility under the FMLA. Um, so assuming you're at a covered employer and assuming you're an eligible employee, uh, for most of the qualifying reasons for FMLA, you get to take 12 weeks of leave. That leave is unpaid, but it is job protected. And the reasons why you can take FMLA leave are generally um, pregnancy um, or to take care of a child. So birth, um, placement of a child uh, with respect to either adoption or uh, placement of a child in foster care, an individual's serious health condition, um, which may or may not be a pregnancy. Um, and then also to take care of someone in your family, spouse, child, or the like, who has a serious health condition. And then there's other reasons you can take FMLA related to military leave. Um, and there's 26 weeks with respect to that reason. So we won't get into any of that. Um, but generally speaking, it's a law that provides a job protected unpaid leave to eligible employees for their own serious health condition or to care for another person's serious health condition. And sorry to throw this one at you, Ellen, um, because it's not something that we have talked about previously, but um, how far does that, does that circle of who can be cared for, who a, a covered employee can care for extend? Is it, um, is it, children and grandchildren? Is it um, ailing parents? How, how far does that go? So it would be child and parent, but there's also for an employer, what's most important is to not focus on the name, but to focus on the actual relationship because the decisional authorities that interpret the various types of uh, family members that come under the scope of FMLA 
use a, a Latin phrase in loco parentis, which basically says we want to look at the actual relationship that exists between the individual who's requesting leave and the person um, for whom they're requesting leave to care for. So I would tell my employer clients, worry less about the name and dig into what the actual relationship might look like. Perfect. Thank you. Um, Now, the Department of Labor is primarily involved in the enforcement of the FMLA. Um, What are the Department of Labor's responsibilities in relation to the FMLA and the ADA? Sure. So um, the Department of Labor puts out great content, both to help employers understand the obligations under the ADA and the obligations they have under the FMLA. Um, Now, the EEOC, as Holly can chime in anytime she wants to on this, but they enforce the ADA rather than the DOL. Um, Unlike the EEOC's enforcement of the ADA, where um, someone who feels that they've been discriminated against would first file a charge with the EEOC, Um, the DOL doesn't have a similar process for potential violations of the FMLA. So that means someone who feels that they have been deprived of their rights under the FMLA may file a claim with the Department of Labor, which could potentially trigger an investigation, but they don't have to do that prior to seeking remedies through litigation or filing a lawsuit. And so just to make sure that my understanding is correct, you know, we hear sometimes, um, and I'm sure, you know, the employers who are listening may have heard the term, um, the employee has to exhaust their administrative remedies. And so that applies to folks who are filing a charge with the EEOC. So they cannot file a lawsuit unless they have exhausted those remedies that are available with the EEOC by filing their charge. Whereas in contrast, when we're looking at enforcement of the FMLA, um, they can choose to go to the Department of Labor and file a charge with the Department of Labor, or they can choose to take their complaint directly to the court. Is that an accurate summary of how that works? You've got it. All right. That's right. All right. Well, I just, again, appreciate both of you so much for being here and explaining um, these important uh, acts to us and how they intersect and and how the agencies enforce them and what they're thinking about. So thanks again to Holly and to Ellen for providing such useful information. It's particularly interesting to me to learn that the protections of the ADA extend to people who are perceived to have a disability, even if they don't actually have a disability. Um, That was something I certainly didn't know before. So thank you for, for explaining that. And thank you to our listeners for listening to the Employment Roundtable. Please join us next time as we begin the first of a two-part series titled COVID-19 and Disabilities, and we dig into when ADA accommodations apply with respect to COVID-19. Thanks very much. The Employment Roundtable podcast is produced by the Gable Gottwalls Law Firm. The Employment Roundtable is provided for educational and informational purposes only and does not contain legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. The information provided should not be taken as an indication of future legal results. Any information provided should not be acted upon without consulting legal counsel.